whether you know it or not, that was actually a rehearsal. Uh, that chorus comes from the worship of God given in Revelation 4 and 5, the four living creatures, the, the elders and the angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. That's not even the text, but it could be. That's a good one. Last week, we discussed Paul's hope and goal and prayer, not even just his hope or goal, but God's goal for his people, seen in Paul's prayer for the Colossians that we need to pray for ourselves Uh, that results in us walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. As we discussed those goals, I ended my sermon asking you, okay, we're to live worthy of who? Live worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but why? Why is Jesus worthy of this? Why does he deserve us living for his pleasure rather than our own? Why his praise and his glory rather than ours or someone else's? And our passage today begins to answer those questions and it transitions us to one of the most significant and beautiful and marvelous paragraphs contained in all of scripture, extolling the magnificence and splendor and majesty and glory of Jesus. There are potentially 10 Reasons that Paul gives in verses 15 to 22 as to why Jesus is worthy of our lives, why Christ deserves us living for his pleasure. And the transition to that paragraph, um, which we'll begin on Lord willing next week, the transition to that paragraph and the first of those reasons related to why is Jesus worthy of this is found in our passage today, verses 13 and 14 of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. I hope you have your copy of God's word and can follow along as we, as I read this and as we discuss it together. Continuing to talk about God the Father from verse 12, Paul writes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So why is Christ worthy of us walking worthy of him? Why does Jesus deserve full pleasure from our lives for now and eternity? And the answer, first answer, reason number one of we'll see how many sermons and reasons it breaks down to over the next weeks or months. Reason number one is that Christ is our redeemer. Christ is our redeemer and thus worthy of this and so much more. What is a redeemer or what is redemption? Well, a redeemer, this will be the most profound moment of the sermon. A redeemer is someone who redeems something, right? Uh, Someone who brings about redemption for someone or for something. So redeemer, redeem, redeeming, redemption, 
all that same word group. So what is redemption? And biblically speaking, redemption is powerful deliverance at a great cost. Redemption is powerful deliverance at a great cost. And I think we see that clearly in four statements drawn from Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So to try to understand redemption, looking at it from a few different angles. First, I want to see the, the power of redemption. The power of redemption is seen right at the outset that God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The idea of redemption, the idea of redeeming comes about and and comes up in a number of places in scripture. And when we think about redemption as deliverance, we have to start with the Exodus. We have to go back to Exodus chapter 1, and think through the history of God's people. And so as we we rewind several thousand years, we come across a people group. They're small though. It's really, all it is is a family. Family that was descended from Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob, or Israel, is the patriarch, the leader of this family, about 70 people. His 12 sons, one of them he thought was dead, but that's Genesis stories, and we're in Exodus, so I've got to stay focused. There's the famine plaguing the entire world at the end of Genesis, and Jacob leads his family into Egypt to settle there, to avoid the famine. They were wandering around in what would be the promised land, but it wasn't the time for them to settle there yet. So God leads them into Egypt, and they they put down some roots, and they begin to flourish. But then a new king or a new pharaoh arises, who the text says doesn't know about Joseph, and the deliverance that God gave through Joseph to really all of the world, Egypt included. And so this uh, despotic, wicked, um, tyrannical, evil, fill in the blanks by way of that ruler, fearful ruler, enslaves God's people setting taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Students, you you might think that your 10 math problems this week were were a heavy burden uh, filled with affliction, Uh, but but they were not. Uh, they They were easy. That burden was light. When you talk about terms like affliction and oppression, Uh, Those need to be reserved for severe things, severe treatments of others, afflicted with heavy burdens. This did not keep them down enough, so the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. No, don't take care of your family first. You're going to take care of of us. You're going to wander the land looking for what needs to be made into bricks. You're going to slave in the hot desert sun of Egypt. You're going to build these. We're going to push you beyond the breaking point because you're you're not humans anymore. You're you're animals. You're here for for us. We don't care if you die. We we delight if you die. We want you to die. In the midst of this, God's people, imagine, you know, a little boy or a little, little girl wanting to play as all do, and yet um, 
Dad doesn't come home from that shift because he has died under the pressure of those type of things, right? Starved to death, crushed to death, beaten to death. This was the lives of God's people. What would the response be to those things? Well, during those days, Exodus 2, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. Year after year, generation after generation of fathers, husbands, brothers, sisters, wives, mothers, groaning under the crushing weight of this oppression that they had done nothing to deserve. They needed someone to come and deliver them. They needed to be set free from this slavery. And then God heard. It says he remembered, not because he had forgotten, but he said the time to act is now. I will deliver my people. He says this in a wonderful way and, and it says it a few different times to Moses. Wants them, wants, God wants Moses to tell his people this. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. And he tells them his own name. And he says, say to them, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And we know as that story continues that God did stretch out his mighty arm and he did redeem his people. And that redemption was not quiet and that redemption was not calm. That redemption was powerful. That redemption leveled the Egyptians, reduced them to nothing. Right? Reduced their gods to a mockery. Reduced their army to nothing, reduced Pharaoh's great kingdom to a, to a heap of rubble, as it were. This was God's powerful redemption of his people, rescuing them from slavery. So then as we think about our own lives, we look at the world around us. Sure, we're not physically enslaved to that, but is this world really a place where all enjoyment happens for us to live in? Is there not violence? Is there not oppression? Is there not, is there not lying done against us? Is there not backstabbing? Is there not sickness? Is this not a place which causes us to groan? How long, the psalmist said, so often, whether it was one enemy oppressing him, whether it was a whole people oppressing him, all of creation, Paul says, groans longing for this present age of darkness and sin to be done and a new age to dawn, a dawn an age of redemption. 
And so as we think of, of so much suffering that encompasses us as humanity, we think we need to be redeemed. God, deliver us. And we look back at the Israelites, look at the history of God's people, and we see that he powerfully delivered them out of that domain of darkness. That's the deliverance that we have. We are back in Colossians chapter one. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Darkness is not a a positive term in scripture. John, John said that men loved darkness more than they loved the light of who Jesus was. Another passage, Paul talks about the fact that we need deliverance from this present evil age. The letter to the Ephesians is a sister letter to the letter to the Colossians. There's a lot of overlap toward these type of things. And Paul describes this present evil age. Paul describes this domain of darkness, this, this course or this path of the world following the prince of the power of the air. Do you know who that is? That, that is Satan, the one who has been given temporary authority over, over all of the earth. The one who is a deceiver from the beginning, the one who is a, a murderer, father of lies, right? the accuser of the brothers and sisters of, of Christ, the roaring lion seeking to devour God's people. He rules this domain of darkness. He is the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Those who who live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind. All those born into humanity are born into this domain of darkness and by their very nature are children of wrath. This, This applies to all of mankind. And yet God redeems us, delivers us out of the domain of darkness. The longing for for deliverance and rescue that you have will, will powerfully come to pass through Christ who is our Redeemer. I don't remember the song uh, exactly, but there was a song that I heard that, that talked about this uh, a little bit talked about the power of redemption and there was, it was a picture of, of someone who was, I think that might be thinking of trafficking of, of young girls in, in India and this rescuer comes and, and kicks down the door and picks her up and takes her out. Right? Powerful rescue of a desperate victim, redemption. There's the power of redemption. There's also the price of redemption. Oh, how, how easy it is, how easy it is to remember that we are victims of other people's sin. How hard it is to admit that we are guilty of those same sins. We are not victims first. None, none of humanity is victims first. We are first criminals. 
You know, there's another picture in the history of God's people of redemption. You actually have to fast forward probably at least a thousand years or so. God's people have, have his law. They've lived in his land. They've had kings and prophets and priests. And they've ignored everything that God has said. Their lives are defined by idolatry and all forms of injustice and oppression, treating others as, as the Egyptians had treated them. Ignoring God's commands, living in unfaithfulness, ignoring his prophets, coming to warn them of those things. Ignoring the, the warnings of the covenant blessings spoken of in Deuteronomy 28 and receiving year after year the curses of covenant unfaithfulness talked about in Deuteronomy 28 where God said, it's like instead of, it's like if you, if you follow me in faithfulness, right, crops and, and birth and victory and blessing, and if you disobey, if you remain faithless, there will be death and there will be famine and there will be defeat. And eventually, just like I expelled the Canaanites out of the land before you, I will expel you out from this. You, you had chains taken off your neck out of Egypt and led into the promised land. I'm gonna put chains back on your neck and I'm gonna lead you away to a nation that you don't know. They ignored that warning. The warning repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They ignored all of those warnings So the Babylonians came, sieged the city of Jerusalem, starved them out, carried them back into captivity. Isaiah, if you read Isaiah, tried to do a quick skim, (laughs) 40 some odd chapters of Isaiah, this morning actually. Backwards, it was really strange. Started with the promises, pushed my, it was a very, very odd experience, but it was very informative. Isaiah begins warning God's people. It's just like, because of your, your sin, you're going to go into captivity. This is going to happen. Yes, I will judge other nations as well, but I'm going to judge you. And you can't read more than like a chapter two chapters in Isaiah where he goes back and forth from you're going into exile and you deserve it to the promise of restoration. And do you know the word that Isaiah, that God through Isaiah uses to talk about the return from captivity back into the land that they were so guilty that they had to be taken into captivity. So returning from their guilty captivity in Babylon back to the promised land, Do you know what word God uses to speak about that return? Redemption. I am your redeemer. Romans chapter one can describe the wickedness of this domain of darkness. The downward spiral of depravity as the wrath of God is revealed against us as humanity giving us over to our lusts, giving us up to debased minds to do what ought not to be done. 
resulting in a humanity, a citizenship of the domain of darkness that looks like this. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we read that, and we're like, yes, that is the world in which we live. God, deliver us powerfully out of that. And then we miss chapter two. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We are participants in the domain of darkness. The Israelites in Egypt were innocent. The Israelites in Babylon were guilty. They were there because of their sin. Same description, the the passages, the portions that I skipped over in Ephesians chapter two, if you were paying attention. Yes, there's the prince of the power of the air and there's the, the course of this world, but he gives it in a different context than I gave it originally. Paul begins by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the, the course of this world. You were, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, you know, them among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're by nature, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we are not innocent victims needing to be drawn out and rescued. We are, we are guilty participants and yet we still need that rescue. And as we think about that, we think about the, the, the guilt that we have incurred and the debt that we have built up because of our sin we're reminded of the price of our redemption, which is that Christ died for us. In him, in Christ, we have redemption, it says in verse 14. This is the same concept as that deliverance from the domain of darkness. The idea of redemption throughout scripture has another term that may be familiar, but probably has a different nuance than we normally think about it. Redemption has to do with the paying of a great cost, but that great cost is referred to as a ransom throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, the paying of a ransom. When we think of a ransom, we think of a kidnapping, right? Someone steals someone else wrongly, right? Steals that innocent person, brings them, there's like $10 million in the next three days type of a thing, and whether it gets paid or whether it doesn't get paid. Ransom is paid, then, then that innocent person is, is, is released, right? But that's, that's not always the case. There's not always innocence. So it's not just the, the payment of a ransom to an evil kidnapper for the release of an innocent victim, but in both Old and New Testaments, as this word was originally used, it has more to do with the payment of deliverance for a slave 
Maybe you were a slave because you were fighting against the army, right? You fight against the, the Romans. Like maybe you were right, maybe they were wrong, but you're a war captive. Maybe you were taken slave unjustly. Maybe you were entered into slavery uh, because of failure to pay your debts, right? You owe 10, 15, dollars $100,000 in debt and you could indenture yourself to this person, enter into slavery and work off your debt, This happens throughout scripture. The amount that you still owed, the price for your freedom was also called a ransom. A ransom that could be paid and then you could be delivered. We hear about stories of redemption, right? I can just picture that in like the description of a book or the description of a movie, a story of redemption. And you know what stories of redemption are in our world? It follows some aspect of, of there's, some, there's a bad guy, right? But as the bad guy goes through, he decides to change his ways. He maybe, maybe he's stolen a bunch of money. Uh, maybe he's murdered somebody, right? Some other act of violence, some other crime. And he moves to another town and then he's, he's, he's re- rehabilitated his life. It's like, oh. And it's like, we know who he is, but nobody else knows who he is. And so he's, he's trying to repay that. If he stole a bunch of money, now he's trying to take money. He's trying to give that out. He's trying to repay for all the evil that he has done. See if he can redeem himself. Right? The person who was, who was involved in a gang violence or a mobster, right? Killing people. Then he, maybe he goes to jail, he gets out, and then he wants to work in the community to try to make it better. He wants to try to bring other people out from doing that. It's like, no, no, don't follow that path. Or instead of, instead of doing those type of things, instead of being violent, he wants to encourage uh, calm discourse. He's gonna make a change. He's gonna, he's gonna pay back. He's gonna redeem himself from the evil that he had done previously. And we're all like, oh, yes, what a good story, right? A good guy doing good things in story, it's like, meh, I don't care. But a bad guy who all of a sudden doing good things gonna redeem himself, we're like, yeah, that's worth the price of the box office. And we, we, we go and we watch or we read and we're like, yes, this is good. And sometimes books like Les Miserables that talks about the redemption of, of a Jean Valjean can turn them into a really good musical story of redemption. And we're like, yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to, I need to pay it back. I can redeem myself. So what is the cost uh, of the price of my deliverance then? I mean, a uh, million dollars, $10 million, uh, $500 billion. What, what is it? I need to pay it back. What, how, many, how many deeds? How, how much time? Do I, you know, I killed one person. I need to save 10 people, right? Do I need to save 100 people? Is it 10 years of good deeds, 100 years of good deeds? Is it 1,000 years of good deeds? What's the price of my redemption? Price of your redemption is your life. The cost is your death. That's the penalty. That's the payment which means that you can't pay it, right? All those, all those charming, heartwarming stories of redemption all by that, that core that is rotten of all man-made religions is that we can do something about this problem. We can pay it back. Right? Think of a billionaire, not a vicious businessman, crazy rich, kills his business partner, buries his body in a field, right? But in that field, he then builds a hospital, a hospital where 
Tens of thousands of people over the course of years are, are healed from, from injuries and illnesses. Named after him, what a wonderful guy. Do you know at the end of his life, all the good of that hospital, do you know what that man still is? He is a murderer. And nothing that he could do could pay that back. The price of our redemption is a life. The cost is our death. You cannot pay back your sin debt, but you don't have to because you can be redeemed by someone else. The price of our redemption is that Christ died for us, giving his life in place of yours. That same Ephesians, Paul, again, a sister letter, a lot of similar phrases come out of that. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter one, where he says, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood. Through his death on the cross, Christ has paid for our deliverance. And whereas I can, you know, you can feel really good to get deliverance for the, the Egyptian, from the Egyptians because they, were, they weren't guilty, like this is the redemption provided for the Israelites in Babylon who deserved to be there, every single one of them. Yet the redemption is still there, redemption from our sins, deliverance because the price has been paid. The price of our redemption is that Christ died for us, then there's the promise of our redemption. The promise of our redemption, seen again back in verse 13, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Actually, I wanted to refer to verse 14 here. In whom we have redemption, and what is another way of describing that redemption? It is the forgiveness of our sins. See, the promise of redemption is that our sins are forgiven. The promise of redemption is that our sins are forgiven. Our debt is paid. Not by ourselves, but by Christ. The forgiveness of sins. You know, occasionally a, a, a really good disc golf throw can go kind of off course. Uh, and that, that hard plastic disc can kind of veer. You thought it was going to veer this way, it goes, veers this way because you're not a very good disc golfer yet. And it could go and it could smash someone's car window. Hasn't happened yet. Could happen. This smashes that car window, right? Because I'm an honest person, I'd find the owner of the car, right? Threw this disc, broke your window, let me pay to replace it, right? So we find them, they take it to the shop, they uh, get it repaired, uh, bill comes to, I don't know, $853.64. I know this sounds very specific, but I promise it has not happened yet. $853.64. They give me that bill. If I pay that bill, write the check, $853.64, give it to them, give it to the auto shop company. How much do I owe on the bill for that window? $853.64 minus Eight fifty-three sixty-four. I'm not great at math, but how much do I owe? Zero. You're good at math. I owe nothing. Okay, what if I can't pay it 
But my good friend and fellow disc golfer, Jake, what if Jake pays it? $853.64 for the repair of that window. How much do I owe for the repair of that window to the person or to the auto shop company? How much do I owe? Nothing. I owe zero. The debt is paid in full. That is, that is the forgiveness or the removal of, of debt. Forgiveness, removal of guilt. What was owed has been paid. It's done, right? It has been canceled. What was required has been fulfilled. What do we owe? What is the price of our redemption? It is our, it is our life or it is our death. What has Christ offered? His life through death. And when the payment has been provided for the debt, if it matches, no debt remains. No more guilt. Nothing more is owed. All is forgiven. We could think something, maybe something gets missed. Sometimes we think about this. I think I was having a conversation with somebody that was wondering about this. Okay, so like, forgiven for all my sins, like, is it just like up to when I'm saved? And then something has to be done about the sins following when I'm saved? Is that how this works? Right? Because I still have more sins. Do I need more forgiveness? Well, our judge, God, is eternal and all-knowing, and all-knowing is entirely exhaustive. All means all in every sense of it, right? Every, every sin of what you did, every sin of what you didn't do that you should have done, every word said, every word not said, every motivation, everything. He knows the entirety of all of our sins has the case fully laid out. Well, Colossians later will talk about the, the record of, of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It is an exhaustive account of all of your sins. And as that glorious thing that we'll talk about in chapter two come up, that full known debt was all nailed to the cross. Full debt. Not at, what if I sin one more sin? That's impossible. Not that you won't sin, you will sin, but it didn't miss God's notice. The full, infinite debt that your sin has produced nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ so you are fully forgiven. If it was monetary and it was in quadrillion of dollars, then quadrillion of dollars has been applied to your account. When Christ has paid your debt, no debt remains. You, by faith in Christ as your Redeemer, are forgiven. And God doesn't forgive like we forgive. It really is as simple as what was owed has been paid, nothing more is owed. The forgiveness of sins. Christ has redeemed you. That's the promise that you are forgiven. Nothing that you do can change that. And nothing more needs to be owed, right? There's no tip that you have to provide on the, 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 the far side of that to just get a little bit more. God didn't pay some of it and let you pay the rest of it. Jesus paid it all. In him, we have redemption. Present possession. We have it. Do you trust in Christ? See, you are guilty before God as a sinner, every single one of us. We have violated his laws, sinned against him, shown that in sinning against other people. We have an insurmountable debt, but we have a savior who mounts the insurmountable. 
It's unpayable unless you're infinite. Do you have the forgiveness of your sins? Does your debt remain because you keep trying to pay it off? Or is it paid in full? Another random illustration song that came to my mind was, uh, I think it's the 30s or 40s, close to the heart of West Virginia. 16 tons, you load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt because you owe your soul to the company store. They, they own your house, they own your food, they own the mine, they own the tools, and you gotta borrow all of that from them. And so however much you earn, you always owe more. So the more that you work, the more that you owe. It's the same thing in our lives when it comes to sin. How could you repay when everything that you do continues to be sinful? Your good works aren't good enough before God. You're increasing your debt. You can't pay it off. But again, the promise of redemption is that Christ has paid it all in full. You can be forgiven. Stop trying to pay for it on your own. There's the promise of our redemption that we have the forgiveness of sins in Christ and in Christ alone. Then there's the perfection of redemption. The, if I hadn't used P's for everything else, I might have said the fulfillment of rede- redemption, but I've got a perfection of redemption. That's good, though. Verse 13, this is where I wanted to go back to verse 13. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Delivered us out, rescued us from the evil that oppressed us and that we participated in because we are guilty, not just victims. Brought us out of Egypt. This is what he did to the Israelites, right? It's redemption because he brought them out. But what did he do with them? He, he took them to the promised land. They weren't left just like, all right, you're out. There's the Red Sea. Okay, can't figure out the Red Sea? Fine. Part the Red Sea, drown the army. Okay, now go. Good luck. Find a place to live. Million people, no resources. That's not what he did, right? He redeemed them, but he completed it because the perfection or the fulfillment or the completion of the redemption is that the Israelites were taken out of slavery and they were given a home. They were given the promised land. And when we think about the exile, a sinful, stubborn people sent into captivity, put back into slavery in Babylon. When God says, I'm your redeemer, I'm going to deliver you. It was the promise that he was going to deliver them, not just like conquering the Babylonians and then good luck. He said, I'm gonna bring you back to your land. I'm going to restore you. You're going to be a people in the place of blessing once again. Redemption isn't just part of the story. Redemption is perfected. It it comes all the way to the completion. What God starts, he finishes. And if he has begun our redemption, and he has, if he has accomplished that in Christ and paid the price for those things and made promises about that, he's going to bring it to fulfillment. And so we see that here, that he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that we both have 
participation in his kingdom now, and yet we also long for the fulfillment of it. We have a taste of what our inheritance is, and we hope, we have a confident expectation of the fulfillment of those things. Right? We have been delivered. The, the, the slave master, that power over that has been broken. Our chains have been taken off. And yet we're, we're in process. We're on the journey of our redemption heading to the promised land. And it awaits the return of our king to finish our redemption. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We, we have a king His name is Jesus, the perfect alternative to the prince of the power of the air who rules the domain of darkness. There was a citizenship of of worldly evil people of which we were a part. We, We are now part of a new people. The reason that we were part of that was because of our sinful nature. Our hearts bent us toward being part of the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air and and being eager, enslaved, guilty participants in the domain of darkness. And now we're something different. We have a new ruler. We're part of a new people. We have new hearts, new desires guiding us by the Holy Spirit instead of by our flesh. See how it's all been made new and this isn't the end of it. There's the perfection of redemption that that we are waiting for. That Jesus is going to come back and finish the redemption. Finish the redemption for us. Finish the redemption for all of creation. Actually redeem creation itself. Deliver all of the universe from its, its bondage or slavery to corruption because of the curse that our sin has brought on it. When Jesus comes back as redeemer, it will be perfect. So we remember our redemption is coming because our king is coming. So you have redemption and we're also waiting for redemption. We're waiting for its full application to us power of redemption and the price of redemption and the promise of redemption and the perfection of redemption. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, and in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a song that we've sung, draws our attention to this. I will glory in my redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by his grace. I will glory in my Redeemer, 
who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I will ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me, gates of gold. And, and when he calls me, it will be paradise, the perfection of redemption, his face forever to behold. Paul prayed for the Colossians that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and live fully pleasing to him. This is God's plan for us, that we would live for Christ's praise, that we would live for his glory alone. Why, why is Jesus worthy of the unreserved devotion of our lives now and forever? Because Jesus is our redeemer. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember the power of our redemption. We are delivered by his death and resurrection. He has conquered sin and he has conquered Satan and he has conquered death. The table proclaims that to us. We remember the price of our redemption. Jesus' body, bread was broken and his blood, the cup, was shed for us. We remember the promise of our redemption that as we have partaken of Christ, we partake of these elements, our sins are forgiven by his death as a sacrifice for us. And we remember the perfection of our redemption. By partaking of these things, Paul says we are proclaiming the death of our Lord and King as we anticipate his second coming for us. We anticipate that, that day of perfection when Jesus returns and our redemption is complete. If by faith you know Christ as your redeemer, then this table is for you. Come receive the bread and the cup in remembrance of him. Let me pray as we prepare to serve. Lord Jesus, you are our redeemer. In you we have full redemption, complete forgiveness of our sins. Thank you. To you be the glory. Amen.